Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Hope you'll leave your Bibles open as we walk through this particular text that Amy just read for us. I want to ask you just a couple of questions to size up the room and to get us focused in the direction that the text takes us today. If, if I had to ask you, what do you think the greatest met need, the greatest need that everybody, believers and unbelievers, have alike, that the church can offer them, that Christianity offers all people? Uh, I'm thinking of, when I was thinking of answers in the last few weeks for this, I was thinking a purpose for why we exist. Why are we here? Why does it matter? What's it all about? Or maybe an ethical approach to life because the Christian work ethic, the way that we live our lives is not just good for believers, it's good for everybody. We We are a blessing when we live out what Jesus calls us to live like. Maybe it's a sense of peace and tranquility about the future. In uncertain times, Christianity gives us a mooring. It gives us a foundation to build ourselves on that can't be shaken by circumstances. And all of those answers are found in scripture. But the truth of it is, if you want to know what the greatest met need of the world that Christianity offers everyone, it's simply this, the escape from the rightful punishment for our sins. Not just the forgiveness of the sins, but that the wrath of God is not turned onto us as it should be for our rebellion. Whether you're a believer or not, every single one of us needs this. If I repose the question in a different framework, I might ask you the question, what sends a person to hell? Because we don't talk about hell a whole lot, nor we shouldn't because we're believers. But what would send a person to hell? A lot of people would say God does. No, actually God doesn't send a person to hell. A person chooses to go. Or they may say sin sends a person to hell. It's kind of true, but not sin in and of itself. I think the real answer to that is what sends a person to hell is unforgiven sin. That the remedy to their condition, because God provided everyone the remedy to our condition, but some people refuse to accept it or receive it or choose it. And they live by their own deliverance, by their own safety, by their own whatever we want to call it, because we're all sinners and none of us should ever get to go to, to heaven that the new kingdom should not be for us. But because of the work of Jesus, everyone received the opportunity to join in the new kingdom. You see, hell is occupied by people whose sins have never been dealt with. And heaven will be occupied by people who had a lot of sin and let Jesus take it from them. This is what the church offers. You see, it's not like God is throwing a temper tantrum, like we sin and so God says, I can't stand it, I'll have nothing to do with you. No, we know that's not the God that we serve. It's not the God that has loved us. It's not the God we worship. We live in a world that doesn't understand him and part of the opportunity you and I have is we can bring to them the solution to their greatest need met in Jesus. It's pretty simple. All other religions The gods of all other religions say, you have to do this, do this, and do this to become a better person that you might re-enter my presence. Yet the God of, of the Jews, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, the God of Christianity says just the opposite. You can't get to me, I come to you. I meet your need. I, I meet your most intimate needs in my son. And he came to demonstrate that to you. I like Isaiah chapter 43, 25. And if you don't know this verse and you give yourself permission to write in your Bible, this is one I would underline. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I remember your sins no more. 
Now, the reason I think this is important is you can find the sentiment of this said many places in scripture, but what I want you to, to see in the core of Isaiah 43, why it's special to me is it says, I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake. God wants to do this. He desires to do this. He doesn't wanna see us banished from his presence. He doesn't need us, he loves us. And he wants to be with us. And he said, I do all the work and I do it because I want to. That passage lights my heart up. It gives me great hope. You see, there's a narrative event that takes place in our text today with this framework. And I'm gonna tell you uh, the, the circumstances, the setting, and then I'm gonna show you the incident and then Jesus' response to the incident and our response to him. That's what I want you to see today. There's a moment in time, something happens, there's a response from Jesus, and there's a response from the people that gathered there. That's all we want to do today as we walk through a text that many of you will be very familiar with. You might know it as the paralyzed man being lowered through the roof. Well, here's the scene. There were people discovering him. Now, this may not seem important to you, but this is a very vital part of understanding what Jesus went through and why he went through what he went through. The crowds were beginning to increase. Look at verse one in chapter two. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, now I wanna pause here. I'm not making fun of Mark, the author of this particular text, but he jumps from the baptism of Jesus into the wilderness right into chapter two. And he says, after some days. But if you take Matthew and Luke's account and you chronologically stretch it out, a few things might've happened between chapter one and chapter two. Here's a few things. Jesus left Judea for Galilee. He met a woman at the well, John chapter four. You know that story. She went back to her town and said, I met a man who knew my entire story and loved me anyway. And she brings her town out to see Jesus. The crowds are growing. He heals a nobleman's son. This is not a Jew. This is a Gentile and non-Jew. This man has power and authority. People would know his story. He has prestige. Crowds are beginning to build, not with just Jewish people, but with Gentile people. He casts a demon out of a man in the synagogue. The religious leaders are now aware that this is a man among common men, but he's not common. The crowds begin to increase. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. The town in which he's staying will become aware of Jesus. The, the word will go out that she's better. How'd she get better? Jesus. And then he cleanses a leper on the road. A, a, a man stands in front of him and says, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he heals him. And now you have the Jews and the Gentiles and the religious leaders, and you have the, the Romans are now aware of it. And then you have the sick community. Those that have great illnesses are aware that this Jesus isn't just a preacher, he's a healer. It's kind of funny. Mark says, yeah, and after a couple of days, Jesus showed up in Capernaum. Those are some chalk-filled days of Jesus demonstrating exactly who he was. But it says that the crowds began to gather, which is fascinating to me because I, I wanna give you a couple of things as we study through Mark this spring. Uh, can we call it spring, even though I think, I think hell might've frozen over. Can we call it that? I'm not sure. And did you enjoy that little slushy you got today with communion? Everything's cold, right? So we'll call it spring. As we go through the gospel of Mark this spring, I want you to notice some words and I'm gonna point them out as we go through the series and some of the other preachers will as well. The word immediately, and the word crowds. Mark uses the word immediately to say that he's teaching us that Jesus was on a mission, not a mission that kept him away from people, but everything Jesus did was led by the Holy Spirit by God's intention to accomplish God's purpose. So it said Jesus went to this and this and this because he was being led to. 
And then the word crowd. Now the word crowd does not mean follower. This is what I want you to note today. When Mark uses the word crowd, it doesn't mean followers of Jesus. Now, yes, they were following Jesus, but they weren't following Jesus. Are you with me? They were around him and they appreciated him and they were amazed by him, but they couldn't see who he was and would not receive him for who he was. So the word immediately in crowd play a role in our teaching today. The crowds were gathered, they were increasing, and it was becoming detrimental to Jesus. Now, Jesus loved people. He wasn't against large crowds. In fact, he knew his message needed to be heard by everybody. But he also knew that the crowds wanted something from him he did not come to give. They were going to try to get him to be something he was never called by God to be. So the crowds were not to his favor. Look at chapter, if you just have your Bibles open, let's look back to chapter Mark 138 real quick. Jesus said to his disciples, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. He wasn't against crowds, but he was trying to build followers, not just people who wanted him to do what they wanted him to do. And I don't know if, if you've heard this before, you probably have. I, I go along with this teaching that uh, most of the previous scholarship believe that Mark got his eyewitness accounts from Peter. He's basically telling the story of Jesus as Peter experienced it. Because Mark wasn't one of the original 12, so there's many things that he could have learned by eyewitness account, but there's so much detail in Mark's account of specific moments that Peter would have been aware of that I kind of nod in that direction, like I think this is Peter's story. And because of that, it goes, let's go back to verses one and two in Mark chapter two. It was reported that he was at home. Now, Jesus didn't have a home. Now, it wasn't like he was homeless, but Jesus lived at the hospitality of people in the communities that welcomed him. That was the culture of those days, and it's a good culture, and they would invite Jesus into the home and feed him. Mary and Martha did it. Peter and his wife did it, and so forth. So when it says he's home, that may be Mark acknowledging this was Peter's home. Keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So when Peter told Mark this story, he's like, dude, the house was packed. People were in the windows and the doors. They were climbing all over. There was more people. And so the crowd could have been 70 people. It could have been 150 people. It wasn't 4,000 people. Peter gives us detail of this, this moment. Luke tells us, as he tells us the story, Luke says the Pharisees had entered the home. That's interesting. So now you have not only the people who want Jesus to do something for them, you have the people that want Jesus to shut up and go away. And then you have disciples. You have a huge mix in this crowd, quite a, a, an incredible scene. And I just want to make a, just a practical moment here, a little teaching tidbit to throw at you. Every one of us has to leave the crowd to follow Jesus. Being in the crowd of people who follow Jesus doesn't make us followers of Jesus. Are you with me? There are many people that saw Jesus do amazing miracles who never followed him for themselves. They followed the crowd. I think maybe one of the things I learned from reading through the gospel of Mark this past week is that crowds can help us, but not always. We each have to make our own step of faith. And what frustrates me in this scene is the Pharisees, who according to scripture, love to take the best seats in the house. I can't imagine the Pharisees were standing in the doorway. They walked in, demanded that they got to sit where they wanted to sit because they were leaders. And it annoys me to think that because the people who needed to get to Jesus couldn't get to Jesus because the people who didn't want Jesus were taking their spots. 
So that's kind of a, a tight setting. So that's the scene, and here's the incident. And what I want us to learn about the incident is this. Where there was faith present, Jesus responded. This is what I learned in reading the Gospels. When faith showed up, Jesus noticed. It might explain in my heart why Jesus would walk by crowds of people who wanted him to do something for them and he didn't respond. It makes me wonder, like, was he too busy? Was he distracted? No, because there wasn't faith there. So verse three, and they came, no introduction, they. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And what's interesting is Luke will tell us in Luke chapter five, this is where he tells the story. And I think in Matthew, it's chapter nine. But in Luke five, Luke tells us they tried to get in the house and the people wouldn't let him in. So these five, this man who had a need, he could not meet himself. His legs did not work. He was paralyzed. He could not fix himself and his four friends could not fix themselves or fix him. And so they decided because the healing one was there that they would go to him. And when they go, all the excuses. He's too busy. We can't get to him. The crowd's too big. He doesn't know who we are. They did not care about all the reasons that, that they had to quit trying. And so they went up on the roof of the house. I love verse four again. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. If you read too quickly through scripture, you miss some of the most comic moments in all of scripture. Now, let's see if we've been paying attention. Whose house was this? Peter, thank you. And how do we think Mark knows this? Knows what took place? Peter told him. Now, I want you to reimagine this scene. Why doesn't it say here, and Peter yelled, who's going to pay for this? because he's got a house full of people and all of a sudden someone starts tearing his roof open. Just a thought I have when I read scripture. It's not mentioned because I think Peter's like, I'll leave that out. They went up the side of the house because most of the homes would have been flat roofed and they would do gardening up there and they would sleep up there in the heat of the summers. They would sit in the cool of the night. They didn't have air conditioning so they'd sit up on their patio on the top of their house and, and these people would not be stopped by the crowd so they carried, now think about the risk, they carried a paralyzed man on a cot up to the rooftop. They wanted this. They cared about him. Dan McGrew, one of our elders, asked me this morning, man, I hope every single one of us has four friends who care that much about our faith and I hope every one of us can be a friend to somebody in the same way. And they get to the roof and they begin to tear the roof out. It would have been thatch. It might've been some tile. It would have been mud and hay and thatch. And they would have gone until they found the beams and they lowered him through this. Look at verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, what? How do you see faith? Isn't faith a belief? The number of people who have told me in their life, oh, I, I believe. I believe Jesus is the son of the living God. Well, if there's no demonstration of that, it is not biblical faith. It's an opinion. And he saw their faith because they demonstrated that they had to get to Jesus to have any hope. And Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, right now, if I could make the sound of a needle scratching on an album, if you don't know what that is, look it up on Google. But if I made that sound, you know, back in the old days of like the whole scene stops, here's it, here it is. He didn't come to have his sins forgiven. He came to make his legs work. And Jesus, who's the all-knowing God, says, I forgive your sins. I think he cut a 
kind of been disappointed here. Great, great, great. But what about my legs? This is what I came to you for. But Jesus saw faith. Now, I don't think he saw that a man being suspended on a cot from the roof was faithful. Now, although it would require great, great faith for me because I wouldn't trust any of my friends to lower me on a cot on ropes because they would drop me, put it on YouTube and make a lot of money and laugh at me the entire time. So I don't have that much confidence in anybody, but that wasn't what he saw. What Jesus saw was how determined they were to get to him. Remember what's the greatest need that every single person has that sometimes we don't think is that great of a need? To escape the punishment that our rebellion against God has earned us. And when he came to be healed, the first thing Jesus did was heal what he really needed. And then I want you to look in verse five, it's so rich. What does he call him? Son. So I went on a little rabbit trail this week and went through the four gospels and Jesus never calls anybody else son in the entirety of scripture. This guy. And then I wondered if he called anybody daughter because I had recollection that he did. Then I went back into Luke chapter eight and I found it. The woman who had the 12-year bleed, who reached out and touched the hem of his garment when he walked by, he called her daughter. And then I looked later in that story because he was on his way to heal a young girl because her dad begged him to. And he was on his way to heal the young girl. When this woman touched, he had an interaction with her. And in the delay, the girl dies and he goes to her house and he calls her, my child, Talitha Kum, little girl, get up. The three terms of endearment that Jesus used, I want you to notice the common thread. He calls this guy son, he calls her daughter, and he calls her my little child. And all of them are called this because they all in their own way demonstrated faith in who he was. The woman didn't even have to have a conversation. She said, I just know if I touch him. This guy on the cot said, whatever it takes, get me to him. Because they couldn't meet their own needs they turned to Jesus. This is what he saw when that man came swinging through the roof. And he went right for it. I forgive you your sins. Now, I don't know if you've seen this episode on The Chosen. I'm a a fanboy of The Chosen. I know it's not always actual scripture, but they take such good care of the scriptures they cover. And the scene that they play in this particular episode, if you haven't seen it, if you have it, moved me to tears again this week. Braden and I decided to watch it. So there's a scene where the, the people that bring this, this man to Jesus and they lower him down, there's eye contact between this woman who becomes a follower of Jesus and Jesus and he looks, they both have tears in their eyes and you understand what's taking place. She is so grateful that the son of God would take care of her friend. And Jesus realizes in that moment, if I do this in public, I am starting the clock on my persecution. Here's what I want you to take away from this. And he did it anyway. When he said, I forgive your sins, it's not because he missed the point. Jesus went for it. The first public proclamation of what he could do. And he knew with the Pharisees in the room, it would cost him his life. And he did it anyway. Because when faith is present, Jesus responds. So that's the setting. That's the incident. Now let's look at the response. His authority is unlimited where there is faith. His authority is unlimited where there is faith. Are you suggesting, Mark, (laughs) that it is limited when there is no faith? Exactly what I'm expressing. 
that where there is faith, Jesus can do anything. When we don't offer him faith, he limits his authority and power in our lives. We, to a degree, have a say in how Jesus' power is displayed in us. Wear that a little bit. Hold on to that. Don't be in the crowd. Step out of the crowd and trust him. In Mark chapter six, Jesus even says this. If you want to turn over to Mark six, same book, just a couple chapters over. We'll come back to two in a minute. In Mark six, verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and his own household, (laughs) right? I mean, don't we all feel this way? Sometimes we go to work and at work, we're considered an expert of some form and people value our opinion and we go home and we can't wipe our own noses. Have you had that sensation sometimes? The people you live with every day look at you like, stop it. You know, oh, I thought I was important somewhere. And uh, Jesus says, hey, even in my own hometown, you all don't see me for who I am. And then he says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. Jesus limits his power to where there is faith. So if there's no connection with you and Jesus right now, it may be because you see him differently than you should see him and trust him differently than you should trust him. And so we go back to chapter two. So have you noticed in Jesus' ministry toward the end of his ministry before his crucifixion, he stopped performing miracles? Jesus did not come to prove he could do miracles. He came to build our faith. And the miracles were provided so we could see his power and authority. But he did not come to heal our bodies. He came to meet our greatest need, to cleanse us from our sins and deliver us returned and whole to the Father. And this is what he's doing here. Now, it says in verse six, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Notice this, they weren't saying a word. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this may be why Mark tells us this story. The gospel writer wrote this down because I think he wants us to question, is Jesus a blasphemer or is he God? And there is no middle ground. And they asked the same question. It's a good question. It's a fair question. It's the question Jesus wanted them to ask. If he's a blasphemer, he should be dragged out of that house and stoned, and anybody who truly follows him should die with him. But if he's not, what if I told you that this week I walked into, I heard an argument taking place in an office, and I I came out of the office, and I walked into an office, and Elijah and Drake, you know both of them, they preach up here, Elijah and Drake were nose-to-nose having an argument. And I walked in like, what in the heck's going on? And before I could say a word, Elijah just punched Drake right in the mouth. And I, you laugh, and, and, uh, and Drake gets a fat lip. He's got a little bit of blood and he's irritated. And I get between him because, you know, I'm the dad. And I'm like, get between him. I'm like, you t- knock it off. Elijah, don't ever do that again. I forgive you. Do you think Drake might have something to say to that? Because I don't have a fat lip and I'm not bleeding. Elijah didn't hit me. I say to Drake, no, no, I forgave him. No, Drake's the only person in this scene who can forgive Elijah because Elijah sinned against Drake, not against me. Do you hear what Jesus said? I forgive you. How could Jesus forgive this man his sins if the sins weren't against Jesus? You want the answer to the question? Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. Very subtly, Jesus said, yeah, you're starting to see who I am. I forgave him. You see, Jesus isn't like Moses arguing with God to not, or to allow Lot to escape Sodom. 
or Abraham to have Lot escape Sodom, or like Moses on the mountain saying, don't crush the Israelites. He wasn't mediating, he's God. That's why he is the only solution to our sin. Because we did not sin, even though you sin against man, you actually sinned against that man or woman's creator. And Jesus just said, yeah, I'm the answer. And then look at verse eight, something similar happens. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? You think I'm a blasphemer? He just gave them another piece of evidence. Look with me at 1 Chronicles 28 on the screen. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you wanna know if he's God, that's why he can know your every thought. He can know your every desire. He can know who you are. It, the juxtaposition here is so real to me. In the crowd, there were people that were sick on the outside, but alive on the inside. And there were people that were alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. The Pharisees should have known and they couldn't see. They were blind and they thought they had sight. And here was this desperate man whose legs didn't work, who appeared to Jesus because he was faith, he would be changed. You see, Jesus was saying, I'm not just a guy. I am the healing one. Verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. That's one of those questions nobody answers out loud, right? Is that one of those rhetorical questions where you just, you just go, mm, yeah, that's deep. He says, which is easier to say? Well, the truth is they're both easy to say, but saying them doesn't make them happen. So when Jesus asked the question, they're like, well, no human being can say either. It's not easy to say. Your sins are forgiven or rise and you're now healed. And Jesus is like, exactly. Snitching is he turns it all around and he says, but if I can do one, I can do both. This is why he started with forgiveness of sins. And then he jumped down to verse 10. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice that there are three commands here, none of which this man can actually do. There are three imperative verbs. Those are bossy verbs. Jesus isn't asking if we want to. He tells him to do three things. Rise. He would if he could. He wouldn't be on a mat. He wouldn't be begging for help if he could rise. Jesus says, rise, take up these security items and walk out of here. Boy, he would if he could. You see, if he has faith, he'll do what Jesus tells him to do even if he can't do it on his own. If he has no faith, he'll spend the rest of his life lying on that mat. And then verse 12. You're gonna notice one of the words I told you you should pay attention to. He arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. No hesitation, no internal debate, he already knew who Jesus was. Now all he got to do is respond obediently by faith. Immediately, he did what he could not do. Isn't that a beautiful picture of faith? That you can immediately obey Jesus and do things you never imagined you could do because you can't, but he can. The power is demonstrated through the faith. And as Amy read at the conclusion of this art passage, we continue in verse 12, so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never saw anything like this. Of course we haven't. That's why he came. 
But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they believed in Jesus. They just liked the miracle. And we can get caught so quickly, can't we? Falling in love with what cool things Jesus might do that we actually miss Jesus. His presence, his promise, his hope, his hard commands. You see, they were amazed, but they weren't believing. In fact, in Matthew chapter nine, Matthew records in his telling of the story, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. In the miracle, they got caught up in the miracle. They didn't see the man. In fact, we know that Jesus would give this authority to do miracles to his disciples, but he never gave the authority to forgive sins because it would cost him more than miracle ability. It would cost him his life to be able to give us the blood that cleanses our sins. They thought he was just a man. For some of us that are just exploring Jesus for the first time, I wanna encourage you, if you weren't here last week, I asked every single person to read the gospel of Mark each week for the next 12 weeks. Now you're down to 10 weeks. To just read it, four chapters a day, take you 15 minutes. You'll be done in four days. But read slowly and carefully. Notice the details. See Jesus. Let Mark tell you about him. Focus on him alone and watch things begin to change. For those of us that are growing in our faith and wanting to go further and deeper into what God has in store for us, and I ask you a simple question. He has told all of us to rise, take, and walk. Will you? When he asks you to do something that's hard, difficult, and you don't think you can, that's when your faith is needed most. What is he calling you, whatever it is, what is he calling you this week to to rise up, to pick up the things that give you security and walk with him? What is it for you? And for those of you Christ-centered, then I'm gonna just continue to beg you to go deeper and deeper in trusting who he is, not what he does. Remembering that he met your greatest need and everything it cost him. And he did it anyway. He can be trusted. If we can pray with you this week, if we can answer a question or concern you have, if we can connect you with others to help you find your completeness in Jesus. At the end of our service, people are headed to the tables with lamps. We encourage you to meet us there We'd love to walk with you as you follow, as you take up your mat, rise up and walk. We do this together. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.